0: Joshua chapter 24, starting at verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of people to Shechem, and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. They presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan, made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron. I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea." When they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did did in Egypt. You lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam the son of Beor to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam, and did indeed he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand, and you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. The leaders of Jericho fought against you, and all the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites—it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards, and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, "...whether the gods of your your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." Then the people answered, "...far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went." among all the peoples through whom we passed, the Lord drove out before us all the people, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will serve the Lord, for he is God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away that foreign gods are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. Joshua wrote those words in the book of the law of God. He took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it it has heard all the words of the Lord that he has spoken to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man His inheritance. Well, I'm told that if you go to Starbucks, there are eighty-seven thousand different drink combinations that you can order. If you wonder how there are so many, you know, you think about all the drinks that they serve, and then all the sizes that they serve, and then you in you know within that you can choose how much sugar you want. You know, regular sugar, no sugar, double sugar. You can choose what kind of cream you want. Whether regular milk or skim milk or soy milk or almond milk, and then you can have it you know single or double or triple eighty seven thousand different combinations or so they say uh, they tell They tell us that there's about six hundred and fifty five thousand different combinations of meals that you can order at Chipotle. There are allegedly thirty seven million different combinations of sandwiches that you can order at Subway. We live in a day and age when there's a lot of choices. According to one author named Michael Ruhlman, as late as the 1990s there used to be about 7,000 items in grocery stores. Today there's about 40 to 50,000 items. We have a lot of choices and as a culture I think we prefer those choices. We prefer to have a lot of choice. A few years ago, a researcher did a study with 100 American students and 100 Japanese students. And they asked the students, they gave them a piece of paper, and they asked them, on the front of this paper, write the things that you would like to decide for yourself. And on the back, write the things that you would like someone else to decide for you. Well, the American students wrote a whole bunch of things on the front of the paper. Lots of things they wanted to decide for themselves. They wanted to decide where they live, what they do at their job, etc., etc. Basically, the only thing that they didn't want to decide is they didn't want to decide the time when they die. The Japanese students were different. They wrote a whole bunch of things on the front of the page. They wanted people to decide what they did at their work, when they woke up. A whole bunch of things, even going down to what they wore. The Americans, they found, desired choice in four times more domains than the Japanese. Based on this experiment, New York Times uh, columnist David Brooks claims that America is experiencing a choice explosion. He writes, Americans now have more choices over more things than any other culture in human history. We can choose between a broader array of foods, media sources, uh, lifestyles, and identity. Yet despite all these choices that we have, sometimes those choices can be overwhelming. And some businesses have thrived by, in essence, limiting choice. There's one uh, business um, that Theo and Carl Albrecht ran from the t- about 70 years ago, they started running it. And they started running it after they got back from World War II, and they took over their father's shop. And uh, it was in a bombed-out city, in a city called Essen, and they just carried the bare essentials of what people needed, like sugar, flour, eggs. Uh, they only had about 250 items. After World War II ended in the 50s and the 60s, the economy in Germany really took off and all these grocery stores started popping up that carried very, you know, a whole bunch of items. And yet Theo and Karl stayed true to what they wanted to do and kind of kept limiting their choices to about 250 items. And because of that, they were successful. Recently in September 2017, the Wall Street Journal noted the remarkable success of this grocery chain that we know as Aldi. They write, Dim lighting bounces off brownish-tiled floors. The shelves are sparsely filled with cardboard boxes. Checkout lines stretch to oblivion. There's nothing super about these stores, yet their owner, German discounter Aldi, is betting billions it can win over spoiled American shoppers. How? By offering them fewer choices, way fewer than rival retailers. The unlikely proposition has worked nearly everywhere Aldi has set foot. The company that started from a simple suburban grocery store in Germany's industrial northwest is now one of the biggest retail groups in the world with more than 10,000 locations, businesses in 18 countries, and annual revenues approaching $83 billion. In a sense, it writes, there's something that's freeing about limiting our choices. In the passage that we're looking at today, Joshua confronts the people of Israel with a choice. He says, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether they'll serve the true God, Yahweh, or whether they'll serve the gods of the Canaanites or the Egyptians. In verse 15, again, it says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers, your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Uh, On the surface for Israel, this would have been a complicated question, because there was a lot of different gods. There was hundreds of different gods in Egypt. Dozens of different gods in the Canaanite region. And so when they're asked this question, in a sense, it was a complicated question. You know, they thought about the different sun gods, the different moon gods, all these different gods and thought to themselves, who should I serve? But when we look at the context and look at the framework of what Joshua is communicating here, we see that this complex question becomes very simple and very uncomplicated. We see that God recounts the story of what He's done through, through Israel. He recounts how He brought up Abraham and He called him out of, of paganism, where His father Nahor worshipped other gods. He he told him how he brought him there and showed him the promised land, gave him descendants. He tells about how the people of Israel went into Egypt and how they were in slavery there and how God demonstrated his power over the Egyptians. How he brought the plagues, how he led them out of Egypt and led them through the, the, the sea to the promised land. He describes how he defeated all of Israel's enemies, all the Canaanites that were in the land. He helped them defeat those enemies. And we see that everything that Israel has, they have because of God's intervention. In verse 13, it says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored, in cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards in olive orchards that you you did not plant. So God gives them this history lesson of where they've been and where they've come and where God has brought them. And then Joshua is here. He's old. He's about to die. He's called all the elders and all the officials of the people together. And he says, Choose this day whom you will serve. It's really a simple question, though. Here's the decision. You can serve the gods of Egypt, who the true God defeated decisively in the plagues. You can serve the Canaanites gods, who were unable to protect them. Or you can serve the God who has been with you every step of the way, who's called you out of paganism, who's made you into a nation, who's defeated all of your enemies, and has always been faithful to you complicated question, complicated decision becomes very simple. It's kind of like a no-brainer. And Joshua, he says, "I, I don't know about you, but me and my house, we're going to serve Yahweh. We're going to serve the Lord. In a similar way, our commitment to Jesus is a simple decision. The God of the universe who spoke the worlds into the existence. He came down to the earth. He lived a sinless life. Died on the cross for our sins. Rose again so that we might have life. So that we might have a relationship with God. And so we have a choice. Do we remain in our sin? Experience a life that is unsatisfying and leads to the grave? Or do we embrace the King of the universe who gave everything for us? Do we experience a love that surpasses all understanding, that begins now and goes forever? It's not a complicated decision. In the book of John, Jesus had just fed 5,000 people. And then he goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and the people are following them because they're hungry. They want more food. They want him to multiply the bread and the fish once again. And Jesus realizes that, and so he teaches some things that are kind of hard teachings to kind of show them it's not about getting a free meal. And so as he's doing that, a number of his disciples leave him. They say, this this is a tough teaching. I can't accept this. And they leave. And then Jesus asks his disciples, his 12 disciples, "Yes, so are you guys going to leave too? And Peter responds in a remarkable way. He says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that You are the Holy One of God. I love Peter's response here. Where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the One that can lead us to the Father. You are the Holy One of God. So where else could I go but to You? The commitment to follow and obey Jesus is an uncomplicated decision. It's not complicated. When we think think it through, it's a very simple decision. Do we follow the one who loves us, who gave everything for us, or do we experience frustration, disappointment, which leads to eternity separated from God? So Joshua says, it's not complicated. You've seen the history. You've seen what God has done. You either serve the ones who were defeated or you serve the victor, the one who brought you here. But though a commitment to follow and obey Jesus is not complicated, it is serious. After Joshua calls for a commitment from the people of Israel, they state their commitment to the Lord. They say, yeah, we're going to follow the God of Israel. And then Joshua responds in a very remarkable way, an unexpected way. He says, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Apparently Joshua didn't take Motivational Speaking 101. Imagine if that was the main idea of my message today. You can't serve God, and He will not forgive you. Your sins, I'd probably be run out of the church. But that's what he says. So why? What is he getting at? Is he really saying that we, our sins can't be forgiven? I I don't think that's the case, and I think there are some clues in this text that indicate what he's getting at. We see in verse fourteen and verse twenty-three that Joshua calls the people to put away the false gods that are among them. So we can surmise from that that they probably had some remnants of idolatry. Probably some remnants of the Canaanite gods or the Egyptian gods. And so when Joshua called them to serve the true God, probably some of them thought to themselves, sure, I'll serve the true God. And I'll serve these other gods as well. And there wasn't this disconnect between those things. And what Joshua is saying here is it doesn't work that way. God's not going to tolerate that. If you're trying to follow the true God, Yahweh, and yet you're holding on to these other gods, He's not going to just overlook that. He's going to punish you for that. Though He's done you good in the past, He'll do you harm if you harbor those idols. You see, the more serious a relationship is, the more exclusive that relationship is the more serious a relationship is the more exclusive that relationship is if a person is dating somebody else and they you know maybe they're just kind of casually dating and go on a date here and there you know maybe they're dating a, a couple different people at a time they go on the, a date you know one date with this person one date with this person and there's no real commitment they're just kind of getting to know one another but once they go on you know, maybe a second date or a third date that starts to get this exclusivity, you know, and it gets to a point where you're not going to date other people, you know, and then, you know, it gets to the point where you're married and then it's, your dating life is over. I mean, imagine, you know, if you were dating somebody else and you're married, imagine what your spouse would think. You'd probably end up in a a body bag, In a similar way, God demands exclusive loyalty to him. It's a serious relationship and it requires exclusive loyalty. Jesus says this in the book of Luke, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's only possible to have one master. For a time, it might seem like two gods can coexist, but you come to a point where you have to make a decision and one god will win out. And when we choose any other god than the god of the Bible, the Bible calls that idolatry. Idolatry is choosing anyone or anything other than God. Allowing anyone to take the place of God in our life. St. Augustine defined idolatry this way. Idolatry is worshipping anything that ought to be used or using anything that's meant to be worshipped. It's worshipping anything that ought to be used or using anything that's meant to be worshipped. An idol is not simply a statue that primitive people bow down to. It can be anything. It can be a bad thing. It can be something like an addiction, but it also can be a good thing. It can be something like family or approval, money, career. And I think the problems comes in when these things steal our affections in such a way that no longer is God the one in control of our life, but these other things are in control. No longer do we say, what would God have me do in this or that situation, but we let our idols dictate what we do. What does this look like practically? Practically. Maybe your idol is your family, and God calls you to share your faith with your family, but you don't do it because you don't want to do anything that could possibly offend them or risk your relationship with your family. Maybe God calls you to do something hard that will disrupt your family life. Maybe He calls you to be a missionary, and you say no to Him because you don't want it to disrupt your family life. Maybe your idol is money, and God calls you to give money to the poor or to tithe, but you don't do it because you don't want to lose your security. You won't do anything that jeopardizes that security. Maybe your idol is approval. And everything that you do, you, the question that's in the back of your mind is, what are other people going to think? And you're being governed in your life by that approval and other people's opinions rather than living in a relationship with God and obeying Him. Maybe you're... Idol is sex. You know, you think to yourself, well, I know it's wrong to have sex outside of marriage, but I'm going to do it anyways. And I'll figure things out at the end. Maybe our idol is our career. And we give up everything for that career, neglecting our families, neglecting the things of God because we're all so focused on that career and the bottom line. These are just a few of the things that can steal our affections and steal our hearts. A few of the things that can become idols in our life, but really could be anything. Anything that steals our affections to call the shots in our lives. And the truth is, idolatry in the Scripture is a very serious thing. In fact, the Scriptures show us that if we persist in idolatry, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Revelation 21, verse 8 says this, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion shall be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteousness, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. See, the essence of becoming a believer in Jesus is turning from our idols to Serve the true living God. Turning from following after other gods and turning to following after Jesus. That's the essence of what it means to follow after Jesus. And if other things are consistently calling the shots, then it shows that we're not believers. That we're not serving the true God. We're serving false gods. If you're here today and you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, today is the day to turn. Turn from whatever it is you're serving and turn to follow the true and the living God. Others of us are believers. And for those of us who are believers, I think that idols are a constant pull. There's a constant pull that idols have on our hearts. As we're following the road of following Jesus, there's other voices that are crying out to us to go down a different path. John Calvin once said, the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. And so as we're walking down the road of following after Jesus, there's these other voices that are calling us to go in a different direction. And sometimes, even as believers, we get sidetracked. We start going down that road of following after another God rather than following after the true God. And when that happens... Scriptures tell us God is a jealous God. He's not going to allow sit back and just allow that to happen. Maybe it means that He's going to punish us in some way, discipline us to bring us back to Him. Maybe it means that He'll prevent us from achieving satisfaction in those idols. Maybe He'll allow us to kind of reach the pinnacle of, of what we want to achieve in following after those idols so that we realize that they're not that satisfying. See, God will do whatever is necessary to bring us back to Him. Because He knows that we'll only find our delight in Him. St. Augustine said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Some years ago, uh, Pastor Donald Gray Barnhouse was counseling a young woman outside of the 10th Presbyterian Church. And uh, she said she was a Christian. She wanted to follow Christ. But she also wanted to go to be an actor in the theater and have a stage career in New York. And she says, after I've made it into the theater, then I will follow Christ completely. Barnhouse took out a key and he went to a nearby mailbox. And he scratched, put a little scratch on the mailbox and he said, see this scratch here? This is what God is going to allow you to do. He'll let you scratch the surface of success. He'll let you get close enough to the top to know what it is, but he'll never let you have it because he'll, he will never let one of his children have anything rather than himself. Years later, he met that girl again, and she confessed that this had indeed been her life story. She had dabbled in the stage once her picture had been in a national magazine, but she never quite made it. She told Barnhouse, I can't tell you how many times in my discouragement I've closed my eyes and seen you scratching that postal box with your key. God let me scratch the edges, but He gave me nothing in place of Himself. He won't give us anything in place of Himself because He knows that the only true and lasting joy that we'll find is in Him, in relationship with Him. And so today and every day we have a decision. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will we serve the gods that will not satisfy us, that will lead us to frustration, disappointment? Or will we serve the God who gave everything for us, who left his throne room, became a man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose again for us? We serve the one who always has our best interests in mind. It's a pretty simple decision. It's not complicated, but it is serious. He won't allow anyone or anyone else to share the throne with him. Commitment to follow and obey Jesus is not complicated, but it is serious. I'd like to close by reading from First Corinthians chapter 10 verses 13 to 14. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You that You are a God who is worthy of worship and worthy of praise. We thank You that You are a God that not only demands things of us, but that You gave Yourself for us. That You died on the cross for us, rose again, and that You seek our good and Your glory in all things, Lord. God, I pray for anybody here who maybe doesn't know You. Today would be the day that they turn from their idols and turn to serve the living God. That they would find life and hope in you, Lord. God, for those of us who are believers, God, I just pray that we would stay on the path of following you. For anybody here who's been veering off the path and following other gods, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they turn back to following you with their whole hearts and their whole minds. God, we know that you're worthy of all worship, worthy of all honor. And God, I pray that we would live lives that are a reflection of the greatness of who you are. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.